as I was looking at chapter 2, I've noticed a couple of things in my own heart. So I have taken certain way of dealing with this text today, and I have decided it is much better for you to take a look at Philippians chapter 2 in this section from high above ground. To look at Grand Canyon from your plain seat. Rather than going into the valley and get lost in it for the reasons that I will explain. Are you familiar with Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11? Are you familiar with that portion? Last Sunday I talked about 1 Thessalonians 5, a verse that I remember. Uh, when I was becoming a Christian, that was the verse a seminarian quoted to me. Abstain from all forms of evil. So I remember that. And also Philippians 2, 5 through 11 was the, one of the first Bible texts that I've seen in my life, and actually I have read it when I was becoming a Christian. I visited the ministry in Houston from Austin, Texas. And when I went there, just like us, now we have websites and things like that. But at the time, everybody had brochures and pamphlets to, to introduce ministries. And the ministry was inspiration for Jesus. So when I went there to visit in Houston... They gave me their introduction, the pamphlet to me. So they said their ministry, they want to reflect Christ, and they quoted this verse, these verses in that pamphlet. So if you would ask me at the time, what is Philippians? I would have no idea what that would be. I wouldn't know where to find Philippians. But I was reading it. Philippians 2, 5, 3, 11, and reading it, and I understood what that was saying. It was talking about Christ's humility. So I thought, okay, this ministry, they want to be a humble people. If you're not familiar with it, you probably wouldn't be able to relate to what I am about to say. In Philippians, there are a couple of black holes for lack of better terms, let me just use that term, black hole. It sucks everything into it. I am not saying God's word is black hole. I am not saying God's word is bad. But there are a couple of points that really, they act like black holes. They, they suck everything into it. And the major black hole in Philippians is chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. In what ways? Once again, if you're not familiar with the text, you wouldn't know. But if you have ever studied the Philippians, and chances are you probably have, because this is an easy text. Um, people have small groups with this text. But if you have listened to any kind of lectures, sermons, or commentaries, whatever you have read, you will understand the most 
important section in the entire Philippians is chapter two, verses five through eleven, because that is the high Christology section. I mean, there are just so much discussions on this text, controversies, debates. So, what happens is. Because we have spent so much time in chapter two, verse five through eleven, immediately our eyes go to that section, and our hearts and minds are drawn into that section, and everything is just sucked into that that portion. I am not going to spend really much time on those issues. It's good to know, it's good to know, but I am not going to spend too much time. On it, but let me just talk about just three points, just real quick. That section is known to many people as Christian hymn. I checked all my study Bibles too; they all say this section is only Christian hymn. It's a poem, and my question immediately is why? Why is that a hymn? All kinds of debates, and people debated, and debated, and debated. From my perspective, this is not a poem. There's nothing that suggests to me that is a poem. But people debated, scholars debated, spend hours, pages on it. But it is not, from my perspective. Second. Most well-known debate on this text is something probably you have heard: the term kenotic theology, kenosis. I remember hearing that for the first time. People around me in the seminary, people were talking about this text, and everybody was throwing out the term kenotic theology or kenosis. I've never heard about that, so I wonder what what is that. And people who have studied this text, they debated, and that term basically is Christ emptying Himself. Verse seven. You could see why that had so much controversy in it, because liberal theology ran with the text. Christ emptied Himself. Basically, they say Christ emptied His divinity. And it fits perfectly with liberal theology, so the debates. But now nobody really talks about it. Most recently, in a helpful way, and we talked about this last year as we were looking at the very first verse of Philippians as an introduction. That the term involves doulos, slave, and really it was. John MacArthur, who brought it to attention in 2008 conference, 2008, and he said, "Doulos should be translated not as servants or bond servants, but slaves. Why? Because that's how it was used, and we talked about this. And only as you understand doulos as slave, you will understand Christ as Lord." Christ, His ownership of His people. This day and age, past couple of years, if you say that, 
you could understand a church could be in a firestorm. We are not saying a slave is a good thing or honorable thing. But carefully we have studied that term in the beginning of our series. That to point out that Paul uses that term to highlight the curious, dual-loss relationship. And, and how that highlights something that is hidden in English translation when virtually all translations use the term servant. That's why we have legacy. That's what started his translation project. But again, now let's back up. There's just so much stuff going on in chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, if you have studied Philippians. Just so much going on. I believe it is not helpful because when you read it from the beginning, that section is not given to the Philippians for them to learn about all these different aspects of who Christ is or a high Christology. Paul is not lecturing them. He's not saying, well, let me talk about Christ. And I'm going to give you a lecture, a 30-minute lecture. That's not what he's doing. That section is given through the inspiration of Holy Spirit as an example for the Philippian Christians to follow. Immediately, some of you may say, Christ is not our example. Christ is our Redeemer. He is, yes. But let's read some of the section to see what Paul is doing with that section. If you look at verse 3, 2, 3, and 4, he is now addressing Philippian church. And he says a lot of things, but when you look at it, it is a corrective message. Paul is correcting them. Maintain the same love, united in one spirit, thinking in one purpose, do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regard other people as important as more than more important than yourselves. Do not look into your own interests, but for other people's interests. And look at verse 5. What does it say? He gives an example of Christ here in this way. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What's the imperative there? Imperative there is not be little Christ. Be saviors. That's not what he's saying. Have this mind or mindset or the way of thinking in yourselves, you see. Explicitly, he's talking to the Christians at Philippi. You guys have the mindset of Christ. You have that. That's an imperative saying you should have it. What? We are not trying to become Jesus, become like Christ in saving the world. That's not what he's saying. But Paul will use an example of Christ, his mindset. And he's telling Philippians, you have problems. Verse 2, 3, and 4, you have problems, Philippian Christians. So I want you to have the mindset 
that was in Christ Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. All that follows in verse 5 and following, how Christ humbled himself, how he emptied himself, how he obeyed all the way to the death on the cross, was possible because of the mindset that Christ had before the incarnation. So the point of that section is not he's teaching us a new hymn. He's not talking about Christ emptying per se. He's not talking about, not so much about lordship salvation. But his point is really simple. You have all these issues because you do not have the mindset of Christ. That's the point. That's the simple point. It is good to know all the debates. It's good to study all of the debate points. But to have that detached Philippians 2, 5, 3, 11 and to talk about it is to miss the whole point. So, so many times we hear about sermons and lectures on Philippians 2, 5, 3, 11 out of context and people learn about Christ and dual natures of Christ, his humility, emptying, all of that. But the context is not that. The point is not that. Paul's point is simple. Have the mind of Christ. That's where it begins. And you don't have that. That's why you have all these problems. So, my first point is, do not have that section as a black hole that sucks everything into it and de- engage in debate after debate. That's not the way you should read the Bible. Simple point. Let me make a second black hole point. I've been saying this many, many, many times. But as I spend more time and as I am in chapter 2, I feel confident in saying this. It's about misnomer given to the Philippians. Philippians is what? Epistle of joy. I think that's the second black hole that distorts our view of the text. A couple of weeks ago, as I was walking my dog, I was listening to Ligonier app, Ligonier Ministries app, and R.C. Sproul, he was talking about Philippians. Some basic introductions on many different topics so I thought, hmm, okay, what would he say as an introduction? What would he highlight on the Philippians? And the very first sentence that he says is, this is one of my favorite epistles because it is an epistle of joy. So many times he talks about rejoice and rejoice. This is an epistle of joy. I'm telling you, if I hear that one more time, (laughs) if I hear one more time that the Philippians is an epistle of joy, I will go crazy. It is not simply superficial to say that. But it distorts our view of the text in this way. People say Philippians is a perfect church, really. Paul's favorite church. Nothing wrong with a church or doctrine because we don't see any doctrinal issues, some in chapter 3, but by and large, it's just 
easy-going text. What they are lacking is joy. So during pandemic, if you were depressed, you go to Epistle of Joy to find joy in Christ. But simple point is, if he says rejoice and rejoice, I've told you many times they are sad. You don't you don't say to a person who's rejoicing, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. But more importantly, that concept, once again, if you are not familiar with Philippians, this will not make sense. But from my perspective, I am reading many, many different texts as I prepare. I am just tired of people saying, this is an epistle of joy everywhere. People do not take Philippians seriously. Romans, whoa, that's something to study. Revelations, that's something to know about. But Philippians, it's like a little snack you munch on. That's why, here's the evidence of that. Walking, distorting my view. If you read from verse 1, the chances are you will skip over first four verses and go straight to verse 5. That's where we want to get to. Christ emptying himself. But first few verses really, is they, they are general statements without context, without any specific individual in mind. So when he says, look at this, look at verse 2. You think the same way maintain, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. We are thinking, yes, 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 let's move on. It's so general that we don't take these verses seriously. But as I was thinking about that, If these are general warnings about usual pitfalls that all Christians everywhere throughout the ages will fall into, so that's why he's saying all these verses, then this will become a false accusation to the Philippian congregation. If none of these things were going on, and Paul is simply saying these, verse 2 through 4 and following, Philippian church will look at it and say, well, we don't have this problem. It's a false accusation. Oh, this is simply a filler. Paul ran out of things to say because this is really a perfect church. So he's saying some general things. Being united in one mind, get along, love one another, and so on. But I think the reverse is true. If you get that epistle of joy out of your head, this is a perfect little church. If you get that out of the way, when he says something, reverse is true. For example, verse 2, think the same way. Philippian church is not thinking in the same way. Maintain the same love. He's saying that because they are not maintaining the same love. Being united in spirit because they are not united in spirit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, 
because they are doing things with selfish ambition and so on. And when you actually take it as it is on a face value, then the picture that we get from chapter 2 is actually a bleak picture. It is nothing like this happy little church who lost their happiness, so he's trying to fix them up with more dose of happiness or joy. It gets worse. Look at verse 14 and following. The reality of Philippian church is really seriously wrong Something is wrong with that church. Again, the black hole distorts our view. But look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And you say, okay, I mean, it's a perfect church, so we move on. But that language is a language from the Old Testament describing Israelites in the wilderness. So when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, you could say, oh, this is a general statement. Let's move on. But I think Paul is not giving you know, much detail out of pastoral concern. But he's seeing the Philippian church is not doing well. So what happened to the Israelites when they grumbled? Why did they grumble? We talked about it in Ezekiel 20. Three generations of total disaster. You know, people complain when they ran out of food and water. And we know better. We, we know it is not simply for the Israelites of old, but it is for all of us, Christians. When things go well, nobody complains. There's no grumbling. But as soon as you run out of water and food, that's when people will grumble. And they will grumble against God and who else? Leaders. So when he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, maybe there are a lot going on in that Philippian church so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And that perverse generation is used to describe Israelites. What was the end result of them? Destruction. Total destruction of God's people. And look at verse 16. If you could forget about that happy little church picture scenario, The last sentence really made me think that the problem in the Philippian church was serious. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast because, here, I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. What he is saying is actually almost like a threat to them. There's one more passage when he used the term vain, in vain. That's when he describes in Galatians 2, after his early preaching ministry, he goes to Jerusalem. And he submits his gospel, his version of the gospel to the apostles, Peter, James, John. 
And he wanted them to verify the content of his version of the gospel because he was afraid that I might be running or had run in vain. The gospel of grace that he preached to the Gentiles, he brought it for the verification and saying, if I taught wrong gospel, all of my past ministries are in vain. So what he is saying to the Philippians is, if you uh, keep doing what you've been doing, it will end up in disaster. You will be like Israelites. And everything, my labor with you and for you would be in vain. This is a serious warning. But we skip all of that because it is not doctrinal issue. Gospel is not compromised. But from Paul's perspective, Philippian church is not an healthy church. And he gave Christ as an example to, for them to follow the footsteps of Christ and the mindset of Christ. I cannot talk about every verse, I cannot talk about everything that is in this text, but just few conclusions that we could draw. Inferences and observations from this. First thing is this. You should measure your Christian life Positively, not negatively. That is, oftentimes, you measure your Christian life, growth and success of your Christian life for what you are not doing instead of what you fail to fulfill. We are content to look at ourselves and say, we are not sinning. We are not breaking any kind of serious law of God. So most of Christians, we feel good about ourselves for not sinning. In chapter 2, as I was reading it, reading it, reading it, Philippians is not doing anything immoral. It's not 1 Corinthians 5. Shocking news. Something scandalous. It's not unethical things. Nobody's really stealing anything. Church fund. There's no complete split in between the congregation, though we see some of that in chapter 4. What Paul is saying, really, the problem with the Philippian church is not that they are sinning actively, but they are not fulfilling the law of Christ. Law of Christ is Galatians 6.2, and it is about the law of love. Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Maybe the picture is like this. So many Philippians are saying, I am not being a burden to you. And that's where they are. They are not taking somebody's burden unto themselves. That's positive. That's proactive. But they are content to say, I am not burdening, because I'm not a burden to anybody, so leave me alone. But the law of Christ is not passive, but active. And we know that from what we learned from the Ten Commandments section in the Westminster Confession. When sin is forbidden, 
the contrary duty is commanded. Right? So I think that's what really is going on. So why don't you think about your Christian life not in a negative way. I'm not breaking any serious command. But are you fulfilling the law of Christ? All these words, 2, 3, 4, and 12, and following, you look at carefully, they are really becoming a cold congregation. So first thing that I want to say is that measure your Christian life in a positive way. Second thing is this. All of his warnings, they sound benign enough. But what Paul is seeing in this chapter 2 is warnings, a lot of warning signs, a lot of weeds growing up. And he's seeing the head growing out of the ground. And Paul is proactively killing all of the warning signs. And I think that's wise. Second point is then, do not let your sin grow. The famous dictum by John Owen is to kill sin, otherwise sin will kill you. We know that. But so often, we look at so many weeds growing in the backyard, but we don't do anything about it because it's not serious, just like the way we look at chapter 2. Nobody's shocked as they look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul alone is afraid of the outcome that is coming. Philippians doesn't, they don't know. Probably they are lethargic about this. They are sitting back, everything looks good, everything is fine. Paul is the only one looking at the Philippian church and something is wrong, seriously wrong. And you are going down the road that the old Israelites were going down. Destruction. You kill sin when it's young and when it is tender and when it is weak. That's when you attack your sin. You let it grow, it becomes too strong. So Paul is doing that and that's the wisdom that we can learn. Number three, humility is everything in communal life for Christians. We need to honor it when you see it in the church. We need to cherish it when we have it in our church. And we need to cultivate it within us. What? Humility. Christ's example, verses 5 through 11, was about his mindset. We know about the love of God. God loved the world, so he gave his son. So redemption, we immediately think about love. But what Paul is saying from another perspective, from the second person of the Trinity's perspective... We don't get our redemption if the second person of the Trinity didn't have humility in his heart. God could love, God the Father could love the world all he wants, all he wanted from all eternity. 
But if the second person of the Trinity says, I'm God, I'm equal with you, why me? Why do I have to go? Why don't you go? Why don't you go? I don't want to go. I don't want to assume human, human nature. I don't want to go down at the level. I don't want to die. You go. Oh, he turns to the third person. Why don't you go? Why me? There's no redemption. Humility is very important. Especially in the church. Humility is important in all areas of our lives. But especially in the communal life in the church. That's why we need to be careful in what we say in the church. All of these warnings, if you seriously think about these warnings and actually try to obey these words, think the same way, united in the Spirit, and if you don't see that, you sound a warning. And you ask your brothers and sisters, we need to pray about this. We are not looking out for other people's interests. Most people say, I have enough things on my plate. But more spiritual people will say, look, there's a warning sign. We are not doing that. We need to wake up. We need to pray about this. We are becoming, our hearts are being hardened. Humility is very, very important. The final thing I want to say about this is this. Let your motivation be always about Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, taken out of context, is some kind of hymn. It's about whatever theology. But we know. If you read from chapter 1 carefully, Paul is Christ-filled person, and you have to notice how as he wants Philippian church to grow in all these areas. His example is not, he does not say, you know, I set up this church so you should work hard to maintain the unity to be an effectual, effective ministry in Philippi. He points to Christ. That's what he does. That's who Paul is. 2 Corinthians 8, he talks about giving. What does he do? He does not say, compared to that church, you guys are not really giving. You should feel ashamed about yourselves. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 8? Christ was rich, but for your sake, he became poor. Many examples, we could have legalistic motivation. We could have antinomian motivation. What motivates us Christians to become more humble? What should we appeal to? Christ. Christ. When Christ becomes your motivation, it lasts long. And when he becomes your motivation, it really transforms all of us. It transforms you. 
So let Christ be the motivation for all things that we do. So may God bless you as we pursue Christ in all areas of our lives. Let's pray.